Well, hey there. I'm Lauren Dimmitt Waters, and I'm a New York City-based blogger and influencer who's been covering beauty, style, and lifestyle for what seems like forever. But now I'm a woman in midlife who wants to discover all of the secrets to growing younger. I'm ready to explore topics that deal with health and anti-aging, especially when it comes to beauty, fashion, wellness, and longevity. I'll find the foremost experts to unearth what's new, what works, and even what you shouldn't waste your money on. I'm on the hunt for the latest and greatest discoveries and strategies to help us all get through this journey called life with a little humor and a lot of attitude. I want to keep fighting the fight so we can all grow old ungracefully. So welcome to Beauty is a Bitch. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode of Beauty is a Bitch. We are going to talk about plastic surgery today. So let me introduce my guest. His name is Dr. Richard Westreich, and he graduated magna cum laude with a BA in biological basis behavior, neuroscience concentration in 1995 from the University of Pennsylvania. He completed his medical school training at the New York University School of Medicine in 1999 with an MD and honors in cell biology research. Dr. Westreich then did his postgraduate training in facial plastic surgery. And I know how to say this, otolaryngology. Yes. Yes, at the prestigious Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. He has been selected multiple times by Castle Conley in New York Magazine as one of the top doctors in facial plastic surgery. He is an assistant professor at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, is on staff at Lenox Hill and Mount Sinai Hospitals. He's a faculty member and teacher at a fellowship in plastic facial plastic surgery at Mount Sinai. His private practice is located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where he specializes in rhinoplasty, septoplasty, secondary and reconstructive rhinoplasty, facelifts, eyelid surgery, and non-surgical procedures. He can also be seen regularly on several national programs, including ABC, CBS, Fox, and Newsmax. And he's also an accomplished artist and musician. His band, Big Rich Energy, is currently touring. Welcome. You are a jack of all trades, aren't you? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, apparently I have a lot of interests. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You never want to sit idle. So I want to talk to you about something that I have been hearing a lot about. And I think it came on because of, well, my guess is because of social media, cell phones and Zoom. And now it seems that the trend is like bundling procedure, plastic surgery procedures. Can you explain what that is? What does that mean, surgery bundling? Yes. So bundling, it's not really a new thing per se, but I think it's something that's gained more traction, more interest. And basically it's it's doing more than one procedure during a single surgical encounter. And the reason that people like to do this is because uh, most people don't realize that when you have surgery, you don't like go into the room and then all of a sudden it's like go and like you're and the surgery starts. There's a good amount of time spent, you know, getting you on the table, getting you situated, getting the IV in, having the anesthesiologist put you to sleep, prep and drape and wake up and all this stuff, and then recovery room time. Mm-hmm. So if you if you bundle, basically you save somewhere around an hour and a half, sometimes even two hours worth of time that would be present in any individual surgery, but you you have that hour and a half that you need to get ready and wake up, but then you do multiple things in between. And the idea is that you're saving money because you're not paying for that extra hour and a half. 
every time you have a procedure and you're also saving recovery time and sort of just making it a lot more efficient. And people have been doing this for years. For example, you know, if I do rhinoplasty, a lot of patients will do a chin implant or do their eyes. And that's the example of bundling. But I think what's happening now is even potentially involving two separate surgeons, you know, a facial surgeon, a body surgeon, uh, and really trying to bundle as many things as possible together. And, um, you know, from a patient standpoint, it makes perfect sense as long as what you're trying to bundle makes sense. So you're you're saying that they are basically bringing in sometimes two surgeons then? That can happen depending on, you know, what you're trying to bundle. Interesting. I, I did not know that. Okay. So why do you think this is a hot trend? Well, I think there was a lot of interest in plastic surgery during the pandemic. Um, you know, at the moment, it's kind of reverting back partially to the norm as people have to do other things. But I think, you know, if you're thinking about getting a breast augmentation, 360 lipo and a rhinoplasty, right, you may not want to go to one person for all three of those things. You may want like the rhinoplasty guy, the lipo guy and the breast dog guy, you know, potentially all working together. And if you can bundle that into one session, like why not? It's an, it's, it's advantageous to you. I just think it's an, an idea that kind of got out into the popular consciousness a little bit more. And when patients are advocating for themselves, uh, mm-hmm. things tend to happen. Okay. Do you think that there's going to be, uh, you know, with the economy and things like that, do you think there's going to be more trend towards this because people think that they're saving money or do you think people are just going to opt maybe not to do a procedure right now? Well, I guess it depends how bad it gets. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Um, I'd say the way it is right now, I think the the, the trend of bundling is probably going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, get if it gets to a point that people don't have the capital to be able to do these procedures, then, you know, then obviously bundling is not going to be the norm. Do you think it's more that people are doing this as, for cost savings or for like a recovery savings? Like, what do you think that is? I think most of them are actually doing it more for recovery. Right. And when they find out about the cost, they're super happy. <laughs> it's like an added bonus. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah. And you're saving like, you know, a couple thousand dollars doing it all at once rather than doing it two sessions. So Plus, it's kind of like have anesthesia twice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's hard question. on the body. Yeah. I get that question all the time. Like I have to go for this procedure. When can I have anesthesia again? And there's, there's no rule. I mean, obviously you don't want to have it the next day, but, you know, so typically you're going to say, you know, two, four weeks, but when you have multiple anesthetic encounters, it can be very taxing on your body um, yeah. in a short period of time. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and kind of long-term, I know I had some issues with it for yeah. me. Um, some people do better with anesthesia, I think, than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the dangers or let's put it this way. What should set off alarm bells if you're speaking to, let's say, a plastic surgeon about doing a procedure and you bring up bundling or he does, like what should set off alarm bells? Like that it might not be a good idea for you. Um, well, I think there's not really a lot of, you know, alarm bells to kind of be set off, but I would say that you should pay attention to the length of procedure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's reasonable evidence that once procedures start getting longer than say six seven hours of time under anesthesia, patients do tend to have more issues. And this does relate to people that are not 100% healthy, but you have to imagine that people that are 100% healthy, even that amount of time under anesthesia starts to potentially cause some, you know, some secondary problems and increase your risk associated with the surgery. So I think the time is probably the main um, red flag. Um, The other red flag um, should be something that patients may not really be able to discern for themselves, but, you know, there are technical issues with doing certain procedures together. And some of those technical issues have to do um, specifically with positioning, right? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Now, when you're doing like a 360 lipo case, right, you're, you're intubated typically. So you have an endotracheal tube in, Um, you're probably starting off on your back what's called the supine position. And then at some point they have to get to the other side of you. So you have to be flipped um, and rolled over while still intubated um, onto your stomach, right? Into what's called the prone position. And then they can do the other 180 of the 360. Um, That happens all time, but, and it, and it's something that can be done with relative ease by a team that's used to doing it. Um, but it is still, you know, sort of like one of those moments in a case where there is like a little bit of increased risk to have to be flipped. Um, and from the standpoint of bundling, what you really do have to pay attention to, and, and really the doctor should be aware of this, honestly, is there are some procedures that you wouldn't want the patient lying on their stomach or their face after you did a procedure. Like a rhinoplasty. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, almost a lot of facial procedures, right? A chin implant, brow lift, rhinoplasty, maybe a blepharoplasty or an eye lift would be okay. Maybe a facelift would be okay, although I don't think anyone would be too crazy about it. Certainly, if you had a breast dog or a tummy tuck, you know, they're probably not going to want to flip you and and put you on your stomach. Um, So so that's something where there may be like a technical conflict. Okay. A lot of technical conflicts arise with uh, BBLs or Brazilian butt lifts. Right. Right. Because once you, once you inject the fat, they, they can't sit. Right. Right. For weeks. And they certainly can't roll them onto their back in the operating room and then do, you know, a breast dog or, a, or like a facial procedure. Um, so I, if you're bundling things, I suppose that, that positionally put the, the first surgery at risk. Right. Do the second surgery you know, that's a problem. I don't know if patients are going to be able to kind of figure that out, but I do think you could ask the question, you know, am I on my back or am I on my front? And is there a problem with any of the procedures with that position being changed in the middle of surgery? Um, So that's a good question to ask. Do do you think that like obviously a reputable surgeon would push back on this, but do you think that like women or men are sort of pushing for what they want. And do you think there's obviously going to be a doctor here or there that's probably going to be like, okay, I'll do it. But how, how do you push back on that? Is I guess what I'm saying. Uh, as a patient or a physician? 
I guess both. Like I, I wouldn't put, I mean, I think as for a doc, if a surgeon said to me, listen, I don't think that's a good idea. And here's why I'm going to listen, but yeah. I know some people don't. Um, so I guess it kind of leads to my next question. Like, okay, so what should and shouldn't be done together? Like, I think you kind of answered some of it. Right. <laughs> like, but. Um, so, you know, for example, you can do pretty much any procedure on the face. Right. At any one time, with the exception of if you're doing fat transfer, which is when you, you know, remove fat from the abdomen, purify the fat, and then re-inject it, like you're not going to be able to do certain areas of fat transfer if you're also doing an open surgical procedure on that area. Oh, Perfect example okay. is like if you're doing a lower eyelid procedure, then you're really not going to be able to do fat transfer because those tissue planes are open, so you can't really put the fat in a specific place. Um, there are uh, very few other examples. I mean, there's nuanced things like if you're doing a lip lift, I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that, but where you remove skin underneath mm-hmm. the nose and then sew it back up and that kind of lifts up the, the lip. So you can't do a lip lift and then do a nostril reduction as part of a rhinoplasty at the same time um, because the incisions get too close to one another. So there are little technical things like that in the face. But I would say, you know, the things that can't be easily um, bundled, most of them res- are about Brazilian butt lips. <laughs> so uh, yeah. if you're doing- I don't know too many people getting those. I have to be honest. I don't um, think that's technically my age group, but I don't know. Maybe I just it was. It's, it was really popular. I think I, I think it might be waning in popularity at the moment, but like there was a good ten years that that was the fastest growing surgery and cosmetic surgery. Ten years. I think so. Wow. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I don't do BBLs, but I have a good friend who was like really was like the BBL king of New York. And he started getting really busy about 10 years ago. Really? So, yeah. Is that um, about when the Kardashians came onto the scene? I <laughs> Around. It might have been slightly pre-Kardashian, but yeah, kind of. They drove that more than anything else. Oh, yeah, um, they did. So, so that particular procedure, basically, you really can't combine it with anything facial or front of body. Like you can't, okay. you can't really do a BBL and like a breast dog. Um, so, but there, there aren't a lot of things that, that technically can't be combined, which is why I think the concept is so um, enticing to patients. Um, so, but if you're, let's say you seek out the best surgeon in your area known for let's say facelifts and you know, you go in and you want to do something else. That's not really their specialty. Are you asking for trouble or not? I think it depends. Um, you know, I mean, everybody is going to have, um, probably one or two procedures that as a surgeon, they're, they're best known for. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not good at the other procedures per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, I think, the thing that's hardest for patients to kind of figure out. Um, the only way to really try and figure that out is, you know, to ask numbers, ask to see before and afters. Um, but even that's not that accurate because 
you know, like I, for example, do like a good number of facelifts, but like most of my facelift patients don't want their photos used. Right. Right. Yeah, like my, exactly. My rhinoplasty patients don't care. Interesting. Um, but like the facelift patients don't want their photos used. Um, a lot of the blepharoplasty patients don't want their photos used. I think it's sort of the um, like 40 and over very private still about having their things online and everything else. So while I have tons and tons and tons of rhinoplasty photos, I have a good number of facelift and eye photos, but, but not as many, you know, as some, as, as reflective of the amount that I do. Um, That's true because they, if somebody doesn't want their picture taken and, and, and what do you think about looking like, I know that I have mentioned a couple plastic surgeons to someone and they'll be like, oh, that's an Instagram doctor, you know, mm-hmm. because they put everything on Instagram and that can be good in some cases and it can be bad in other cases. Um, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Cause they tend to put everything online or right. at least, at least share it on social media. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, my thoughts honestly are that, um, Instagram is just another marketing tool. Exactly. Okay. Right. It's really no different than, you know, doing SEO and ranking and Google AdWords and all the things that we've been doing for the last, you know, 10, 15 years on the internet. It's just a lot more visual. Mm-hmm. And as a doctor, you have to be a little bit more of a performer. Right. And so and and I'm I'm doing the same thing. And I was very resistant to it for a lot of years because I felt like it would sort of erode my brand as like a serious person. Right. But yep. eventually I just said, you know, I, I got to go with the times and, and I'm not going to do anything like ridiculous, but at the same time, like people do want to see me as a person. And so you're going to do some things that are a little fun and a little silly and, 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 and of that nature, because that's what captivates people's interests. Um, but they're, you know, so I don't think it's a negative. But I don't think just because if somebody has a million followers on Instagram, it doesn't mean they're a good surgeon. Like that's a totally different question. So, you know, maybe you notice them because of that, but, but then you should do the same due diligence on that doctor as you would do from somebody that you got from like a Google search and not be influenced by how many followers they have because the number of followers they have, they didn't operate on a million people. Right. Are you sure about that? (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. So, you know, there's not a million happy patients that are following them. So I don't think it's a problem. And, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all that is fine as long as people are professional. I mean, I think patients don't really love to see the gore, honestly. So, yeah, I don't. A lot of procedures. Um, Every once in a while, we put up, you know, some sort of procedure video. And, and every time I do that, I regret it. I like lose followers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And then, and then you kind of wonder too about the patient, like, did they really know, like, especially if I see like a tummy tuck photo and it's, it looks kind of like, did they really give permission for that? You know, Um, that's kind of, they probably (laughs) did, but I would hope, I would hope. They probably did. But I mean, if it is something that's completely de-identifiable, right? Mm-hmm. Then technically you don't really need permission because you can't tell who that is. It could be anybody, um, like an open surgical wound. 
Um, right. Now, if the patient happens to have a tattoo and that yeah. tattoo is in the photo, then, then if you didn't get permission, you're going to be in some trouble. Um, <laughs> most, people, most people try to get permission. A lot of people actually put these permissions into their surgical consents and the patients sign off on it. And I can tell you that, you know, if I had a nickel for every patient that didn't actually read the surgical consent, I can have a lot of nickels. Yeah. Um, you know, technically they signed off on it, but then, you know, maybe they didn't even really know. So, you know, it's a little dubious. I, I have a separate one because I don't want it included, you know, in that because I think it's a, that's something that people will get very upset about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a privacy thing. And, you know, I wouldn't want my picture put up someplace without my permission either. And so I respect that. I, that I, I would agree with that. So what about like informed consent? Like if you ask, for example, is it, is it okay to ask a doctor for good examples and also bad examples? Like I'd kind of want to know my risk, my risk versus um, reward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say, I would say we don't really, um, I know you're not going to share the catalog of like, this one went way didn't, wrong. <laughs> didn't turn out as well as we hoped. And like, you know, you, you don't put those photos together. I think right. the indirect way of asking that question is about, um, revision. Okay. Rates. Um, and obviously, I mean, everything is going to be on a spectrum. So you're going to have average examples, fantastic examples, you know, and some bad examples and the bad examples you're typically going to revise. Right. After the patient wants. So, um, you can ask the question. I don't think they're going to be able to just pop up. Oh, well, here are some, you know, terrible outcomes that I had. Um, cause you just don't keep those around. One, um, very interesting thing that I remember uh, one of my colleagues saying, this was this was a while back, never really caught on. Um, but he used to say all the time that when we present at meetings, mm-hmm. that the rule should be that you have to present the three cases before the photo that you're showing as an example and the three cases after. Oh, interesting. So you kind of hide it in the middle. to present <laughs> you know, a continuum of cases around that one case that turned out perfect. And so now you're showing it to all the colleagues to, you know, make them all feel like you're the best surgeon I ever walked on the planet. Um, just to get it so that everybody can have a more realistic expectation of what the outcome is going to be on average. Okay. Um, but don't you think, think when you're in a, in a room full of, of surgeons, you all think you're the best? <laughs> I mean, it's not that um, sort of the... <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Isn't that sort of a job requirement? <laughs> I mean, confidence is a job requirement for, for being a surgeon. I don't know if narcissism is. Okay, I mean, got it. Got it. That's I a fine line, right? I will, I will say that, you know, I think I'm great at the things that I'm great at. And I have my reasons for thinking that. And I and I do have other colleagues that I respect that I think are very talented um, and could do, you know, just as good of a job as me. But they do things a little differently. Right. right. So you, you, you believe in the way that you do things. I would say everyone has their own kind of individual take on how they do certain parts of the operation that you develop over a career. And, and I think that's 
those are the things that you believe in about yourself and you develop them because you think they give you better results or more consistent results. And it doesn't mean that the doctor down the street couldn't do the same thing, but I don't know. I couldn't tell that doctor to do X, Y, and Z. They're going to do right. what they do. Um, and, um, and I think that this, everybody's their own unique individual. So. Well, let's talk about due diligence. Like what, what do you think is the due diligence that someone should do when looking for a surgeon or. Um, well, I think there are some basic things. Okay. It's actually a great question. Um, cause I don't think patients understand some of this. Number one, I think you should clearly, um, figure out what training this person had. Um, so, you know, like my background is I did, you said it before very correctly, otolaryngology. And if you want to up your game one, then you can do the otorhinolaryngology. I know what that is too. <laughs> Which is the ENT. Yes, That's it is. Cool yes, it is. So I did yep. otolaryngology. Then I did a facial plastics fellowship, right? So if you come to my office and I'm proposing to do breast augmentation, I should be able to explain to you how I accomplished the skill set and being able to do something that has nothing to do with ENT and facial plastics. Okay. Right. right? Now I, I could have, I could have gone and, you know, spent a couple of weeks with a breast surgeon. I mean, good surgeons can learn any surgery, right? Right. Um, it's sort of like not see one, do one, teach one, but that's the adage during training, right? We are wired to, conceptualize an operation, watch somebody else do it, pick up on some fine points, and then be able to translate into being able to do it. But I think you should ask specifically, you know, hey, you're an ophthalmologist, like, where did you learn your skill set in rhinoplasty? Like, did you do extra training? Like, how did you get your experience? So that's number one. Uh, Number two, which I think is most important, is people don't realize that when you operate somewhere, you have to get credentialed to do specific procedures. So oh. like when I operate at the hospital, they will send me a procedure list and I will check off the ones that I'm requesting to be allowed to do. And then the chairman of the department will then sign off is the secondary person checking that I have the appropriate training background. Interesting. Okay. Let's say I want to do laser surgery. They're going to ask for certification of laser training in order for me to be able to do that. So that's the check and balance that exists in the hospital. But let's say you go to somebody's private office and they have an OR in their office, right? Yes. Who is the objective third party determining whether or not that doctor is sufficiently credentialed to do that procedure? Interesting. And that seems to be sort of a trend. I'm seeing a lot of uh, doctors or surgeons putting uh, ORs in their office. Yeah. And they mostly do it for the right reasons. But the point is, is that that same doctor is the one signing off on his own, his or her own ability to do these procedures. So you've mm-hmm. lost an extra check. So I think when you're having office-based surgery and you're doing things, I think the the onus is more on the patient to like really make sure that this person you know, has the training for that particular procedure and to be able to do it well. Do you, let me ask then, should we be a little leery of 
surgeons that do have offices? I mean, because of that? No, but I mean, I think as with everything, most people are, you know, honest and well-intentioned. They're not going to do things that are right. You know, typically, you know, looking to hurt people, but there's always bad actors, right? right? And so you always have to protect yourself against, you know, the person that is that is not acting in your own best interest. So I just think that when you're having office-based surgery, um, you should you should give a little bit more attention to making sure that that doctor truly is um, trained in order to perform the procedure that you're having. Okay. How how do you find bad actors, as you said? Like how? Wh- like what are what are places that we can go to to find out if there's been complaints? I know that there is a very well-known influencer that had a very bad, uh, I remember listening to this, gosh, like a year ago and following sort of what happened to her. This is in California. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it it was amazing how much this doc, the surgeon got away with, quite frankly. Mm, And it's, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to yeah. say it, but, uh, you know, here, because, but, but it is somebody that had sort of not a good follow up. I think it, the, I think the operation surgery went fine. It was what happened afterwards and the recovery that didn't go so well. And then she, then she found out that there was this doctor had had a lot of complaints, but they were able to hide behind I forgot other extenuating circumstances and whatnot. So there's, um, this, this, yeah, there's not a ton of, um, opportunities, obviously, you know, online reviews are, mm-hmm. you know, a, a double-edged sword, but, you know, clearly if there's a large cohort of people that are writing about bad experiences, you know, there's always going to be some people. Um, but I'm talking about a, a a significant minority or even majority of people like saying they had bad experiences, like that's probably, you know, true. Right. Um, you know, there are governing bodies. Um, I don't know if lay people can contact like the, the OPMC, the office of Pro- professional misconduct and get any um, stats on doctors. Clearly if there are, you know, lawsuits and things of that nature, that information is available online, but then if if there's settlement, um, I, don't, right. I don't know if that settlement is something that people um, can find out. So yeah. it is very difficult, yeah. uh, which is why I think you know when these things do happen, it tends to you know open up Pandora's box and everybody's like, well, how did this person continue operating? I remember there was maybe a year ago there was a surgeon who. Um, had a license in New York and New Jersey and had lost their license in New York, but then it continued operating like in New Jersey. And there was like no reciprocity between the States in terms of saying that. Right. Now, when you renew your license, you're supposed to divulge that information um, and other things. So, I mean, obviously that doctor didn't, didn't do the right thing. Um, But I think, yeah, there are, there are ways around it for people who probably shouldn't be operating on other human beings. Right. Unfortunately, it takes a little time. But I would say, you know, reviews, 
look and see if there have been any, you know, lawsuits or settlements that are in the public domain that you can find and, you know, contact, you know, the OPMC and see if the doctor has a, a clean report card. I think you can get a report. Okay. I think you can, but you just have to know to go there. Like who knows about the office of professional misconduct? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do, but I don't think the patient. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Right. And then what are some other, you said to do your dil- due diligence. So you said one, check their education training to the, that they're credentialed to do certain procedures. Are there any more? Um, yeah. I mean, I, when you're having a surgery. I mean, verify their board. Okay. Right. Go um, the boards, you know, like I'm like the American Academy of Otolaryngology and, and the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery or the American Board of Otolaryngology and, you know, the American Board of Facial Plastic Surgery. Like you can go on there and verify that I am in fact board certified and I have renewed it and it's current. Um, you know, I would just, and you know, 999 times out of a thousand, you're going to find nothing. Right. But I just think, you know, it's one of these things, it's easy enough to do, it's online, it takes, you know, two seconds, and maybe it gives you a little bit greater assurance about like what you're embarking on. So. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, any more? Um, just I before. Think, I think that's it. Boards, o- OPMC, and um, and a record of, um, of pending or, or past litigation. That's pretty much all you can do. And, and obviously, obviously the- reviews. Excluding Yelp Yelp, because Yelp is garbage. Yeah, it is. It is. (laughs) It is. I do not do not look for your plastic surgeon on Yelp. That's probably a very good tip. (laughs) Look for the burrito place you're gonna go after. Exactly, exactly. Where do I eat after (laughs) I have my consultation? Now Mm -hmm. let's talk about consultations. Is it okay to do one? over zoom or is it better to go into the office? I, I love doing online consultations. I wish my patients still wanted to do them, but very few want to do them now because it is an extra step because you still do have to come in. Right. But I found actually doing it. It was very visual. I could screen share and show them things and draw on things. And so I was able to get like, 70% 70% of the information across. Okay. That when they came in, we were just focusing on the specifics and, you know, saying, yes, we definitely want to do this. I liked breaking it up. I thought it was better for patients. I thought they retained more information than coming for one like hour and a half long consult where like you retain 20% of what's going on. Um, right. So I thought it was really great. And it also made things a lot easier for patients. Right? Like who wants to travel to my office and like have like a three hour odyssey? You know, you can just do a half an hour Zoom and get the same information, you know, and find out whether or not, you know, I have like, you know, four hands or something, you know. Right. And, you know, just check the box of like, okay, I like this person. I like what they have to say. Like now I'll take the time to go in. Um, I thought it was a really useful thing from a patient standpoint. Um but okay. just nobody's interested in it anymore. I think everyone's sick of Zoom. See, I would think it's fantastic. First, yeah. I mean, I think if as long as the surgeon is is thinks that it's just as good, I think that maybe people don't know that. Maybe they think that it's better to be there in person. But 
that brings up, and I've talked about this before, if you've got questions, write them down before mm-hmm. you meet with your doctor, your surgeon, potential surgeon, so that you don't, because when you're in front of somebody, you forget. Yeah. You know? So you should have your questions written down. And then another tip I learned was to like make them repeat like the name of the person. So you can go do your research, you know, like what is the, what is the medical term for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and do your research because I'm very much into advocating for yourself, you know, because no one's going to fight for you as much as you're going to fight for yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I hope. if we have a long explanation, I'm going to assume that you understood it. Yeah. Unless you tell me otherwise, you right. know, so I'm not clairvoyant. Um, <laughs> you're not. I, yeah, I'm not. I'm a lot of things, but I'm not clairvoyant. Come on. I think a psychic <laughs> surgeon would be awesome. That would be really great, actually. It <laughs> would be great. It would yeah. be great. You're going to get 20 years out of this facelift. No, <laughs> that'd be great. Um, okay. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this? Like bundling. So we're saying it, in certain cases, it's good. Mm-hmm. And, and some it's not. So if you're going to go in for like a rhinoplasty, don't ask for a BBL. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, um, got it. And I think it is okay to ask somebody if they work with any other doctors. Oh, good. Okay. If you could combine two different physicians into now it's complicated. It takes a lot of logistics to do it, but I do think a lot of people um, are able to do that. Um, it's just simply a question of whether or not both doctors are credentialed at the facility. Got right? it. But, but somebody okay. can get credentialed, you know, at a private office pretty pretty easily. Um, that's not really an issue. But if you really want you know, to some specialists, like, I think you can ask. Oh, okay. But so do you need to come into that appointment then knowing who these surgeons are? Or like, would you say to somebody, okay, that's not my specialty, but I know, like, do you offer it up? Or do we need to go in and know this? I mean, I when I have those situations arise, I offer it up. Okay. Um, but I think from a patient standpoint, if you already have an idea of a couple other people that you'd be interested in, in having, you could say like, hey, do you ever work with Dr. Blah? Oh, and good. Okay. Possible for us to maybe combine both of you working on me on the same day. Um, and they either know them or they don't. And um, And I think it's as a patient, you should advocate for that. If it's right. something you really want. Okay. I like that. I, I, you know, that's interesting because I think that that brings up, you know, a really good point. And I would hope that I, I, you know, what I like is that you're saying like, ask the doctor, like, I think too many people are afraid to offend or afraid to, um, you know, really ask what they're thinking. And to me, I think you should be comfortable. You should be very comfortable with who is going to perform surgery on you and you should ask these questions, but I understand maybe people aren't. Yeah. And I think you never should be afraid of your surgeon. I mean, I think that's very old school, the way these, you know, people used to behave. I mean, ultimately we're, we're in a service industry. You should be able to ask me anything and I shouldn't get offended about anything. Right. Um, Right. And um, it's not about ego. So I think it should be fine. And if you ask a surgeon that question and they get offended, then I guess leave the office. (laughs) 
Run. Right. Leave your office. Go to somebody else who's going to treat you appropriately. I think that is great advice. (laughs) I think that's just the way it should be in life anyway. And it shouldn't be, you know, this is your your body, your face, you know, and this is, let's face it, most of the time it's elective. And I think that people, um, you know, feel, get a, well, maybe it's my age group, you know, maybe, maybe it's, you know, younger people don't have the same, uh, don't want to be rude, don't want to seem, you know, offensive or anything. And maybe we should learn to really ask those questions and feel yeah. comfortable about it. I agree. Okay. I think, is there anything else you would like to add to this conversation before we wrap it up? Um, I don't think so. I think we talked about a lot of really great we stuff. Yeah. We did. I, I, I feel pretty good about it. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, I, if anybody's considering uh, plastic surgery, maybe you want to bundle, talk to your, your surgeon about it. Reach out to you. I will make sure that I put your information uh on the show notes and uh you know just make sure you're comfortable with your doctor i think that's great advice Absolutely. okay we're gonna wrap it up if you've enjoyed this episode please be sure to leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts it really helps us out a lot i have a new pro aging podcast bi-weekly so please contact lauren at fountainof30.com for sponsorship opportunities thanks so much for listening everyone and remember you have to be your own advocate Take care, everybody. Bye.